Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 4. Till We Have Faces, Part 1, Chapter 6 and 7, The Comfort of Orwall. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt, especially excited Bush. <laughs> you have to give a little context for the listeners that have joined us. Probably in the last 20 episodes, I would say we have not brought that back up. <laughs> Matt's weird and says, especially, like the same way that some people say espresso. Uh, and he's always excited about everything. So, And what would be the one other word you would say I use frequently? Let's see if you can get this. Incredibly. Yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I gave you no preparation on that, but that just goes to show that I clearly use that word way too much. Yeah, there's a long list of words. I still keep threatening I'm going to do a Matt bingo card where we have all of your favorite phrases and words that the listeners can just tick off as they're <laughs> listening to an episode. I've never been good at vocabulary. We've learned this. I've made up words on this podcast. I have mixed up words. I've combined words. I mean... But not last time. You were right. I was wrong. (laughs) Dichotomous is a real word. I did have to send that to David. I looked that up later. (laughs) So you don't always make up words. Not always. Just often. (laughs) Just often. You know what they say? Every blind squirrel gets in that once in a while, and every broken clock is correct twice a day. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what are you drinking this week? I'm still drinking Macallan 12. Honestly, until I go to the store, I've got enough of this to last us probably another 10 episodes. <laughs> okay. It's just so good. So we might drop drink of the week for you since it's the same every week. I am drinking a lovely cup of English breakfast tea that was made with the brand new kettle that I bought at our office because we were slumming it before. We just sort of had a hot water tap. It was warmer than normal sink water, but not hot enough for real tea. So I got... I bought the office a beautiful swan-necked kettle. Well done. Let's cheers to that. Well, give us the quote of the week and we'll cheers. Oh, yes. I always jump ahead. That's just because I'm excited to drink the scotch. You're especially excited, yeah. I'm especially <laughs> excited. It's incredibly <laughs> delicious. So the quote of the week actually really hit me in many ways. Honestly, this will probably make its way into the blog post and the YouTube video. I just think this is beautiful. It really sums up this chapter well. This is from Psyche as she's talking to Orwell right before her death. My country, the place where I ought to have been born, do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but like going back. All my life, the God of the mountain has been wooing me. I am going to my lover. Beautiful. There's so much I want, I want us to say on that, but we're going to talk about it in the chapter and we're definitely going to talk about it in the YouTube video. Cheers. Cheers. That just gets better every time. <laughs> you think we're to the point yet where we have enough listeners where I could contact McCallan and see if they would give it to us for free? I know the Catholic Man Show have way more listeners than we do, and they've been trying the same thing with Lagavulin, and it hasn't worked. So probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, this is something to look forward to. I long for the day when we can do that. <laughs> so what have you been up to this week? It's been a fantastic week. I just landed today from Savannah with my college roommate. Had an incredible time. Oh, great. Now you've got me thinking about incredible, Ken. Come on, man. <laughs> you, you kill me. Had a wonderful time. It's It was lovely to disconnect 
it meant I had to rush a lot of this stuff today. This morning I was in the airport doing the notes, wrote the blog post on the plane, did the YouTube video, prepped it about, well, an hour ago because I just disconnect. I didn't check email or anything from Friday afternoon until Monday morning. And it was just a wonderful time. It's something you don't get to do frequently, disconnect. And since you're with the person you're supposed to be with, hanging out, I didn't really check text messages that frequently, which I think you were the recipient of some of those delayed responses. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. How about you? Uh, This week was good. Uh, I got back from Canada. I'd been teaching some dance lessons there and doing a theology on tap. And I'm actually speaking again in Imperial Valley, which I've never been to. It's about two hours east of San Diego. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I'll be doing that on Friday. Well, speaking of, I guess I should mention just to tease for listeners, I'm working, I did work on and got more drafts done of the talks for Halo, the app that we've talked about. So I'm getting really excited for that. And we'll release them, I I would assume, we'll probably release them on here as well, take advantage of those. And I've been, they're going to be about C.S. Lewis, and I've been prepping a ton to one, essentially focus on longing and how it pulled him to Christ and weave in his story, and then also theosis. So I'm really developing those themes. I'm quite excited. So that happened this last week too. Well, actually, now you mentioned theosis. One thing I did want to say, as I was listening to last week's episode, I was really struck by the themes of theosis, which we didn't really comment upon. And I was thinking in particular of the pregnant woman who wanted Psyche to kiss her because she thought her unborn child would come to share in some of Psyche's beauty. Whoa. Yeah. Well done. I didn't know you were going to talk about this, so that was a perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, you could even argue that the crowd, they wanted Psyche to touch them so that they could share in our health and wellness. And that's very Christ. If people ask about theosis in Scripture, there's, some, there's plenty of verses, and I'm not going to read them right now. And they're, they're even from St. Paul, quite a few of them. But with that said, you even see that exact thing you just point out with Psyche in Jesus. People want to go and touch his robe so his powers flow into them. That, that was pretty normal understanding in that time period that there was a benefit to touching something holy or divine. I don't know if at the time they understood fully what they were doing, but... Oh, yeah, there's Old, pre- there's old Testament precedent for it, and it's also something that the Christian church continued right up until today. That's where relics come from. I'm glad you brought that in. That's great. Well, let's jump into chapter six. Here's my summary. King Shom says that Psyche is to be sacrificed the following day. The fox complains that he would have fought for more time and tried anything to save her life. The king scoffs. Orwell attempts to appeal to the king's pride, but to no avail. She offers to stand in Psyche's place. In response, Trom shows Oriole her reflection in a mirror, and reminds her that Ungit demands the best, and she doesn't even come close. Orwell leaves and then meets Redival. It is confirmed that she had a part to play in Psyche's fate. Orwell continues to the room where Psyche is being held. She pleads with the guard, Bardia, to let her visit her sister, but he refuses. She returns with the sword and attacks him. After easily disarming her, he is moved by her courage and relents, letting her in to see her sister. I'm very excited in this chapter that we get to see... Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> I don't even notice I do these things. David, I am not going to let you dim my light. Yes. You sparkle, Matt. You sparkle. Please carry on. Bardia is a wonderful character. And I can't wait for us to get to know him more. 
throughout this book and this journey. And we get it, we're gonna see just how beautiful he is, honestly. In in a very short scene, to be frank. And so I'm very excited for that. But this chapter actually begins with somebody else being an okay sort of person, King Trom. Uh, we're told that his hands were gentler than Oriel expected. Um, he says, here, lass, this'll do you some good. And he gives her some wine. And he says that she should put some meat on the on her face that he bruised. So he's a little softer than we've previously known, but it doesn't take long for the real king to come through. When she spills some of the wine that he's giving her, uh, he says that she's spilling it like a baby. And he really takes on the behavior and language of an abuser, trying to convince his victim that she is the one at fault. He says, daughter, you shouldn't have crossed me like that. A man can't have a woman, and his own daughter's what's worse, meddling in business. He's trying to justify the beating that he's just given her. I mean, the only thing that comforted me in this is that Orwell does seem to see him clearly. You mentioned in the previous episode that somebody that was as terrible as King Trom, you just wouldn't care about him. Well, Orwell does seem to recognize what a pathetic man he is. She says that he seemed to me now a very vile, pitiable king. And this will be interesting because a little bit later, as we unpack the conversation between Orwell and Psyche, something we'll notice is Psyche is very good at pitying other people, not letting them affect her. And in that example, Orwell does not do it very well. I won't go into any more detail, but we'll see that. So here we see example, we kind of see both the good and the bad. We see Orwell doing a good job pitying someone here and recognize, putting themselves in their shoes, seeing that they're broken and letting it affect her less. But then later we're actually going to see example where she's emotional and she can't do that, particularly with rid- Redival. <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, anger and letting things get to you, much of this first chapter in chapter six uh, is about the king complaining. He says to the fox and Oriole, you look at me as if I was some sort of two-headed giant that they frighten children with, but what would you have me do? And he asked the fox, okay, you're so smart, what would you have done? And what's funny about this is the fox has got lots of ideas. He said he had mainly played for time. Uh, he would have made up a, a, a that he'd had a dream that said that they should sacrifice her the following month that she wasn't the right time to become a bride or she would bribe some men to say that the priest had cheated when he drew the lots and regardless he would get help he would arm the slaves promising them their freedom or contacting the neighboring king and offering him pretty much whatever he wanted if he would come in and save his daughter notice how he is operating under a very strong assumption And that's the assumption that the priest is just wrong, that none of this is, there's no benefit to sacrifice. There's not as if this is important for the gods, the reasoning the priest has given. And so he's not even entertaining the idea that maybe a sacrifice does need to be done. It's just, it's his rational, naturalistic perspective. This is all wrong. And let me come up with reasonable ways to solve this. And there's another false assumption he's working under. He's assuming that the king cares about his daughter. Because <laughs> particularly with those final suggestions about giving away his kingdom or giving away parts of his kingdom to a neighboring king in order to save his daughter, the king has a response that is probably my favorite line in this chapter, where he says, be a little less free with other men's wealth. <laughs> there was a lot of zingers here between, I mean, the king had a zinger, but then I thought the fox had a lot of zingers in response to the king here. Oh yeah, after the king has said that the purpose of offering counsel to a king is to help him you know, keep his kingdom, uh, the fox 
he has a really snarky reply, and I'm this. I'm really kind of surprised that he didn't lose his head for saying this. He says, oh, I had forgotten that your own safety was the thing we must work at for all costs. Yes. And I love like right before that, he said, I ask your pardon. <laughs> I like how he starts that with that. Oh, it got me. Now, Orwell, she tries to convince the king. And I think she's kind of clever with the way that she does it. She appeals to a sense of pride. She says, well, how would it sound if men said that when you're dead, that you hid behind a girl to save your own life? You know, hoping that... You know, he would have some pride and this would be enough to help him uh, find the motivation to save his daughter. But the king's response is well, it's actually kind of pretty terrible <laughs> uh, because he, he tells us how he views Psyche essentially as his property. He says, no one seems to remember whose girl she is. She's mine, fruit of my body. What did I beget her for if I can't do what I think best with my own? Jeez. She's just a thing. And it really reminded me of the great divorce, the kind of possessiveness we see in the mother ghost. Remember, she was the one that said uh, of her son, he's mine, do you understand? Mine, mine, mine. King Trom thinks the same thing of Psyche. She is his, therefore he can do what he wants with her. We've mentioned this before, but it's good to remember how all of these characters give us an example of different distorted loves. And We've talked about how Orwalls is is very distorted and possessive, but it's masked as self-sacrificial, sort of, even though it's selfish. Like, it's masked as a genuine love. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. The King's is just even further on the spectrum. It's a possessiveness with no masking of <laughs> caring at all about the other person. It's like, I do genuinely possess you. You remember the line in The Great Divorce where McDonald says that brass is more often confused for gold than lead? Yes. Yes. Orwell's love looks more how we would imagine love to be. And actually, the king, he actually can't believe that Orwell is trying to save Psyche for love. He says that there's some cunning that he hasn't smelled out yet. And he says, you're not asking me to believe that any woman, let alone such a fright as you, has much love for a pretty half-sister. It's not in nature, but I'll sift you yet. Another wound. Yes, and it also shows the framework that the king is working under. He can't countenance the idea that this is someone I love and I will therefore do anything to protect her. Instead, he just rationalizes and says, well, it's better that one die for many. And that, to me, had very clear biblical allusions, uh, referring to when Caiaphas, when they're talking about what to do with Jesus, and Caiaphas says that, uh, it's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Wow. I remember, <laughs> this is just classic Matt remembering things 80%. I was thinking of it from the Christ one dying for many in the pure sense. I didn't remember that this was Caiaphas as well in a negative sense. That would be a much more applicable direct connection. Yeah, because I was thinking of this is a distorted version of what Christ did because Christ did die for many. He died for all of us. Uh, and that was one dying for us all. But it was very different. And that's what I was going to have us expand on a little bit, because in that case, it was freely given. In this case, it was unfreely taken. But there is actually a freely given sacrifice that is at least offered, because Orwell offers herself in Psyche's place. Hmm. And the king here is oh, just, it's just brutal. He takes Orwell to the mirror that he's got at the far end of the hall, which is there because it's a really great mirror, and he therefore wants everybody to see that he's got a great mirror. You know, we keep seeing throughout this story that 
the king does everything so that he'll be noticed. But he takes his daughter in front of this mirror and then says, Ungit asked for the best in the land as her son's bride, and you'd give her that? And even worse, it then says that he held me there for a full minute in silence. Perhaps he thought I would weep or turn my eyes away. That is brutal. Absolutely brutal. I'm like, I I was left speechless when I came across that. Seriously, just puts her in the mirror. Do you think someone like this? And this is where it goes back to the question that we're going to ask time and time again. And I think it's an important one for us to eventually answer by the end of this podcast. Is the way Orwell becomes her fault? That's something I have still wrestled with after reading this and all of the books. I'm like, yes, okay, I can, I've already seen some scenes where grace has been extended to her. And we particularly will see that with her conversation with Psyche. And there'll be a bit more throughout this book. But I'm like, man, I think if I'm in her shoes, I'm probably going to be pretty wounded, pretty broken, pretty distorted. And I am not sure if I would accept a lot of blame for the way that I turned out. That's brutal. If any parent treated a child that way. That's a question we should keep in our minds as we go through this podcast. Is there anything else you want to say about that scene? Or shall we follow Oriole out of the pillar room? Let's follow her out of the pillar room and into Redival. Yeah, so Oral, she says that basically Ungit has invaded. She says that there are temple guards everywhere, there's a smell of incense, sacrifices going on, Ungit is in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Raise the roof! <laughs> and she meets a babbling, tearful Redival. Oh, sister, sister, how dreadful! Oh, poor Psyche! It's only Psyche, isn't it? They're not going to do it to all of us, are they? I never thought... I didn't mean any harm. It wasn't I. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> did, you, did you practice that, David? No. That I, was well done. <laughs> well, I've told you, I, I read these to Marie. We, I've actually been catching her up in order to listen to this Tuesday's episode. The, the best part about this is you, you practice what you preach. You tell all of the listeners to read this in preparation. We hope they do. And you do it with your girlfriend. Yeah. And with voices, because that is the only way that you read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But in this bit of babbling from Redival, we see some very clear things. One, she's still thinking about her own skin. Says, they're not going to do it to all of us, are they? And also, she alludes to the fact that this is her fault. I never thought. I didn't mean any harm. So our suspicion that she is partly to blame for this is very clear. The question I had for you is, do you think it's just that she went and told the priest what had happened? Or do you think she'd actually been going to the house of Ungit and whispering in the priest's ear, pretending that she was Ungit? Do you remember what the priest said in the previous chapter, that Ungit speaks to me at night? Hmm. I never thought of that. But here's, I do have a thought of the answer to that. I believe the former, not the latter, as much as I think the latter is clever and would be quite cool. The reason I think it's the former is because if it was the latter, that means the priest is making a mistake. It might not necessarily be coming from Ungit, but it's the priest's view of what Ungit's saying. Except I get the sense as this book goes on, and I don't want to reveal much, that this is what the gods want, and that it's a beautiful thing, and she does really return home. And so I guess you could say the gods could have blessed a mistake and helped Psyche in theory, but I, I feel like the more plausible explanation is this is the God's desire for Psyche to come home and to satisfy her longing. And we're going to see how beautiful that looks. So that's my guess. Okay. But I, yours is clever. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. Well, in response to Redaval's babbling, Orwell threatens her. 
in a beautiful way. She says, if there's a single hour when I'm queen, I'll hang you by the thumbs at a slow fire till you die. <laughs> She's so brutal. That's her. This is where it would kill her if, if Psyche was here and said, stop talking like that. You sound like your father. <laughs> well, exactly. Her resemblance to, to King Trome at this point is, is very clear. Uh, and there is a line that I thought was also kind of biting. She said, I'd known Redabelle's tears ever since I could remember. They were not wholly feigned, nor much dearer than ditch water. Whoa. Yeah. So I think we see, she can see that Redaval is, she's not evil. She's just broken. She is sad for her sister, but at the same time, she's easily moved to tears and her, actually, her, her soul, <laughs> her interior spirit is very easily distracted by shiny things, be it a brooch or a new boyfriend. What I'd point out here is, I've met people like this, and I mean this with the utmost compassion. There are people genuinely suffering from despair, depression, which is usually a form of self-worthlessness. And typically when you meet some of these individuals because they feel an immense amount of shame or worthlessness, they are very turned within themselves. They have an inability to empathize with another human being. They can't see it from someone else's perspective. Because they're, it's a self-protection mechanism, honestly, defense mechanism, they're only thinking about themselves. And so in states when they're in so much pain and suffering, or at least they believe they are for various reasons, they continue to just focus on that and then try to overcome it, I guess. Um, so I've, I, that's, I, there's a few people in my life, obviously I'm not going to name any names, that I was thinking of, and I Do really it. sympathize. <laughs> David Bates, I'm just kidding. <laughs> So would you say that these people, they've perhaps transitioned from being grumblers to simply a grumble? I, that's, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think, no, but I think they're a lot closer to that. I think that's a good way of describing what I am trying to describe. They're just very turned within themselves in cravatis in se, oh, as you would say. Beautiful, beautiful. I know, I know. I had to tease you a little bit there. So for those of you who have just joined us in season three, here I'm referring to uh, an episode that happens in The Great Divorce, where MacDonald refers to somebody, somebody as transitioning from being a grumbler to a grumble. They're basically losing themselves in their complaining, where they're putting their, their focus. And Matt's mention of incovatus in se is the Latin phrase meaning of a soul turned in on itself. Yes. And at the end of this, and I'm glad you brought this up, we start to see that Orwell fully is confirmed. So we don't actually start to see that Redival did tattoo on the gods, and she believes that's why Psyche's being killed. And I thought this was interesting because my first thought with this was, all right, one, this shows that Orwall's analytical framework, she assumes the gods are petty enough to punish for the beauty of, the, of another. I think we're going to later see that that is not the case. That's something that she's been taught. That's something that she believes. I don't actually believe the gods are that petty. I think we'll see that revealed. But second, she's assuming that the gods wouldn't have noticed if it was not for Redival. That's another assumption I think is not correct. It's assuming that the gods only because Redival went to them and told them about this, which makes them, which really belittles them, frankly. Did they actually willing to sacrifice Psyche? But that doesn't fit with what we'll see later. Well, let's uh, get to the next chapter by finishing off the final scene in this chapter where Orwell tries to get into the five-sided room where Psyche is being kept. Mm -hmm. Yes. Bardia, the captain of the guards, he is guarding the door, and so she tries to convince him to let her in, and he says that he's sorry, but she's not allowed. 
And I thought there were some telling phrases in this section. It says, he looked away from me, so he hid his face and said again, I'm sorry. I turned from him without another word. Though this was the kindest face, again, always excepting the fox I had seen that day, for the moment I hated him more than my father or the priest or even Redival. Mm. I don't know quite what's going on here, but I think faces are being mentioned a bunch. <laughs> That's because I genuinely believe, well, we're going to unpack this for the next couple of minutes, but I genuinely believe Bardia just shows a very, represents a very simple, dutiful love. He's not the wisest person. He's not the most complex person, but he follows his duty well. Because as we see in the scene, you could argue, hey, look, he's on the king's side. He's guarding the doors against Psyche. He's not allowing Psyche to escape. But he's not thinking that way. He was operating under a framework that this is going to happen one way or the other. But I would rather show Psyche the honor and dignity of being the person outside the door to ensure that at least these last moments are optimal or someone who cares for her is outside. He, he just understands that he can't change the course of this. And yet he dutifully and beautifully and simply loves her in a way that is honestly foreign to the fox and is foreign to Orwell. And so that's why I think he has the kindest face. Picture these people. There, there are people in your life that you can picture that just have a simple yet beautiful duty to the Lord and to his will. And they don't know half the stuff you know. They don't know a tenth of the stuff you know in theology, but it's just so beautiful. Although I will say that uh, we typically don't look kindly in history on people who say that they were just following orders. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there is a right way and a wrong way. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> yes, that's true. Way to ruin that for me, David. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's what I do. Uh, anyway, Orwell goes and gets a sword and attacks Bardia. And... Uh, he disarms her easily, but he praises her bravery. He says, a thousand pities, lady, you weren't a man. <laughs> and he says how good that she was and how tough it is for him, given that one sister is so beautiful and the other one is so courageous. And Orwell, she laments that he didn't kill her. Mm. So it looked like her two options were either I'm going to kill him and get into my sister or he's going to kill me and put me out of my misery. If that's not the strongest example of her possessive love. She would rather die than be alone without the validation or affirmation or purpose of loving Psyche. Yeah. But I also thought in here there's something that is important. This is the second time that I believe we've seen positive affirmation for Orwell. The first time, I wouldn't quite say it's positive affirmation, but when the king says you'll be, you could be worth something if you know something. And now we're seeing again... She gets affirmed for her abilities. And I only want to highlight that because we've been focusing so much on the negative side. So she's getting cut down. She's ugly. It's distorting her love. She's not worthy. But then she's getting some sense of some worth. And as we see later in this book, and I'm not giving something away because we know in the first chapter, the first paragraph, she becomes queen. We're going to see how she essentially puts her identity in her accomplishments as a queen and her knowledge and her ability in battle. And I don't think those are coincidences that we are seeing some of the seeds being planted early on, that this could be how she defines her worth. Mm. When he said that, I was reminded of her small comment saying that she had repaved the floor, the one where the servant slips because it was so uneven. She runs a tight ship. I don't even remember that. <laughs> Nicely done. But anyway, Orwell's courage manages to get her in the room. 
Bardia says, I'll risk my life, and on gets Roth too. And he says, quick, in you go. Heaven comfort you both. And then we come into chapter seven. There is so much in here. I don't know how we're going to get through this all in time, but let's, let's go for it. Orwell enters the five-sided room where Psyche is being held, and the two embrace. Rather surprisingly, it is Psyche who comforts Oriol, drawing on the stoic lessons of the fox. She speaks about her childhood longing for the mountain and how this will be fulfilled in her upcoming sacrifice. None of this pleases Oriol, who wants Psyche to cry and be angry. In the absence of this, she even questions Psyche's love for her. Bardia knocks on the door, and Oriol is forced to leave the chamber. So before you jump into this, I just want to point out, listeners, as as we go through this, we're about to see a lot. And just to tease a little bit some of the things in this conversation between Oroa and Psyche, we're going to see. We're going to get to see the genuine love of Psyche as she comforts Orwell. We're going to get to see her wisdom. We're going to get to see the possessive love of Orwell. And what I think is most important, we're going to get to see the source of Psyche's wisdom. Really, where is this all coming from? And so there's a lot in here in this conversation. I don't know what notes you took, David, but there's a lot of quotes that I kind of want to bring in. <laughs> not, a, not a ton, but probably four or five things that Orwell said that are just so profound that you just want to keep them as is. Well, the first thing I was going to ask, Lewis comments that the, well, through the voice of Oriel, the image of Psyche upon the bed and the lamp burning beside her and that this was burned into her brain. Do you see any particular significance in that? Or is it just the just the tableau that she's seeing of her sister, knowing that this may be the last time she sees her before she dies? Mm. Well, my mind, the second you said that was Christ on his journey and his face in the cloth. But then I thought, I'm not really sure if I see a connection there. That's just where my brain went as you said it out loud. I didn't have anything when you first read it. Okay. But I pictured the suffering Christ and his last moments with his face imprinted on the cloth and the blood of it. But I don't actually see a connection there. Uh, For those non-Catholics among you, this is a reference to St. Veronica. You'll see this incident replayed in The Passion of the Christ. We'll just ask Andrew. I'm sure he'll know. (laughs) Yes, we we should create a running list of questions for Andrew. Yes. Uh, I think the main thing in this exchange is how the tables are turned, strangely, that it's Psyche who comforts Oriel. And actually, that's why I chose the title for this episode that I did, The Comfort of Oriel, because it's slightly ambiguous. Is it referring to the comfort which Oral gives, which isn't much, or is it actually the comfort that she receives from Psyche? There's a quote here that really jumped out to me, and it demonstrated what you're talking about, this role that Psyche played in comforting Orwell, where Orwell actually says, and then she smiled. She had wept very little, and mostly, I think, for the love and pity of me. Now she sat tall and queenly and still. There was no sign about her of coming death, except that her hands were very cold. That really last part, there was no sign about her of coming death. It made me think of a person that is in communion with God. When you are in that relation with God, when you're oriented in the right way, you don't fear death. And that was what we see here. And we're going to, this is, I don't need to go further into this because we're going to see much more of this as this conversation progresses. But that is a powerful thing in how those who are in that are able to provide such comfort to those that are around them because they are comforted by our Lord. And once what you have, you can give. 
Yes, and the opposite of that is what you don't have, you can't give. Nemo dat quod non habit. Exactly. That's the Latin version of that phrase. Well done. Thank you. I only speak enough Latin to, you know, buy a paper and order a pint. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Orwell starts complaining about their father, suggesting that he'd hide behind a woman in battle because she's angry at what he's going to do to Psyche. And Psyche, she responds and she shows us some of her thinking, her worldview that allows her to face death in this manner. She says, you make me think that I've learned the fox's lessons better than you. Have you forgotten what we are to say to ourselves every morning? Today I shall meet cruel men, cowards and liars, the envious and the drunken. They will be like that because they know not what is good from what is bad. This is an evil which has fallen upon them and not upon me. They are to be pitied. So I want to use this as a chance to stress. We talk a lot about, and I particularly, this analytical framework that people have in how we're learning that there's some truth in some of them, but they're incomplete. And this was given to us by Emily in our pre-interview. Sometimes I bash the fox because he seems to miss part of the picture. But this is a really good example of where he does have truth correct and how Orwald has taken some of his truth. And we're also going to see later how she's taken truth from the priest. And she's found the truth within them all to get closest to the ultimate truth, honestly. And I think that's really beautiful. But the problem is they, the, the other characters all have just some of the truth, but they're raising that up to completeness. And that's the danger that we're seeing. Yeah, Psyche is synthesizing faith and reason for us here. Uh, but that's no use to Orwell, because she just wants to wallow in the misery of the situation. In Cavatis Inse. Exactly. And Psyche starts to do something of, some, something of a will. She gives her final instructions, her final requests, uh, she plays with Orwell not to commit suicide, and she refers to Orwell herself and the fox as three friends. And this term, friends, makes Orwell smart, which, again, I'm thinking back to the four loves. Friendship is a great love. In fact, the ancients thought it was one of the best. Um, but for Orwell, being called a, her friend, that wasn't enough for her. Uh, Orwell also says that she'll ask Bardia what a dying daughter should say to her father because she doesn't know the king at all. Uh, and then Psyche turns to talk about Redival, and Orwell says, you should curse her. And Psyche says, no, no, she also does what she doesn't know. Does that sound like Christ? <laughs> Forgive them, Father, for they know what they do. But she says she, does, she doesn't know what, she, what she's doing. And Orwell says, not even for you, Psyche, will I pity Redival. And Psyche's response is, would you like to be Redival? What? No? Then she's pitiable. I was just going to say the wisdom in that is incredible. And that's what I was referring to earlier when I said that's a good example of how she can't pity in this case, but she was able to pity earlier. We see Oral sometimes doing well and sometimes struggling. <laughs> yes, and that little exchange there reminded me in Mere Christianity where Lewis talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. And so if you wouldn't want to be that other person, then you should at least be able to pity them. Isn't that a great question too, by the way? If someone's speaking ill of another person, to ask them, would you like to be that person? No, then they're pitiable. And then the conversation changes gears, and Psyche talks about what's going to happen, and she starts referring to herself as a bride. If you recall, in the previous chapter, we have this strange paradox where the sacrifice is both the best and the worst. The sacrifice is going to die, but also wed the god or goddess. And Psyche admits that 
the one thing that she's actually scared about is the fact that if none of this is true and she's just going to be tied to a tree and she's going to starve to death. I absolutely love that. Her only fear is that her longing won't be satisfied, that it was a misplaced longing. Wow. And even more wow is Orwell's response to this. Psyche's tears please her. Oh, I didn't write this down. What did Walk me through this. And I forgot, obviously, already, clearly. She writes, And now she did weep, and now she was a child again. What could I do but fondle and weep with her? But this is a great shame to write. There was now, for me, a kind of sweetness in our misery for the first time. This was what I had come to her in prison to do. Orwell needs to be needed. Yes. She is a type two on the Enneagram. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to throw that in there. I was just talking about it this weekend with my friend. And Psyche recovers quickly, probably too quickly for Orwell. And this is where we get into the bit that you were talking about earlier, about the fox and the priest. Because Psyche, she explains a new understanding that she's come to find regarding the priest and Ungit. Yeah, she says, but I'll not believe it. The priest has been with me. I never knew him before. He is not what the fox thinks. Do you know, sister, I've come to feel more and more that the fox hasn't the whole truth. Oh, he has much of it. It'd be dark as a dungeon within me, but for his teaching. Did you have more to that quote than I had? <laughs> I just had a little bit more. <laughs> let's hear what you're, let's hear David, what you had to add to that. The listeners are like, what did David think was better than that? It's not better, just to finish the thought. She says, and yet I can't say it properly. He calls the whole world a city, but what's a city built on? There's earth beneath and outside the wall. Doesn't all the food come from there as well as all the dangers? I like that part, but what's a city built on? Rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> that was well added, David. Listeners, I'm sitting here, so we obviously do this over Skype, and I see David's eyes just looking at me. Are you going to finish this quote? But I, we take separate notes. <laughs> so not, that was the end of mine. But I did love that. That is exactly what I was talking about earlier, that Psyche does an incredible job, a wonderful job, picking the truth from the different areas, finding out what is right and what is wrong with the different teachings. And she was able to combine it to find closer to the fullness of truth. Yeah. And then they discuss the gods because we've asked before, are they real? And Orwell says that they're real, but they're evil. But Psyche actually offers a third possibility, that they're misunderstood, that there are real gods and they do these things, but they might not be quite what they seem. Well, in, in right in the scene, actually just slightly before it, this is what I was referring to earlier where there was a little bit of a grace given to Orwell at that moment in time from Psyche. Orwell loves Psyche. Psyche just shared with her an immense amount of wisdom to update her analytical framework. And Orwell's response was, of course the fox is wrong. He knows nothing about her. He thought too well of the world. It never entered his mind to believe that the gods are real and viler than the vilest man. Like she just, she didn't hear a single thing Psyche said. Well, also she just responds angrily. (laughs) Yes. And so then she got the next chance of what you just read about what Psyche replied to her and saying, yes, but maybe there's something else than what you believe and what the fox believes. And Orwell just will have none of it. And also, Psyche's calm demeanor is really starting to irritate Orwell at this point. You know, earlier we said that the king was angry. Here we're seeing Orwell angry again. And what seems to particularly annoy her is the fact that their parting seems to cost Psyche so little. So she feels like, well, maybe I wasn't special to Psyche at all after all of that. 
Yes. And we learned something about Orwell. She's actually very self-aware right here because in the next quote, she's, she's essentially admitting, I probably should have come to comfort and actually seeing her quite comforted already then should have made her feel good. Orwell should be like, ah, Psyche's actually already comforted. That's a good thing. But in reality, she wasn't really coming there to comfort her. She wanted to feel needed. So she says, had I not come to give her comfort, if I could, surely not to take it away, because that's ultimately what she's doing, but I could not rule myself. Perhaps it was a sort of pride in me, eh, one self-awareness there, a little like her own, not to blind our eyes, not to hide terrible things, or number two, a bitter impulse in anguish itself to say and to keep on saying the worst. So she essentially recognizes that pride and impulsiveness are massively overcoming her in this moment. And that's preventing her from receiving anything that Psyche shares with her from a wisdom perspective and preventing any ability of her to comfort Psyche. And Psyche has more to say. She's been offering the Fox's stoicism, but she says that there are also some other Greek masters who taught a little bit differently, who taught that death opens a door out from a little dark room, uh, that's all the life we've known before it, into a great real place where the true sun shines. And Orwell just can't help but respond in anger to the fact that Psyche has this hope. Yeah, it's frustrating. And this is, maybe this is a good time to a little bit, but Lewis writes more about this in The Four Loves where he talks about how in a good state, we've been talking a lot about distorted love, but we've mentioned rightly ordered love through psyche. But he puts in the four loves, the proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where he know he or she no longer needs our gift. Obviously, Orwell's not doing that in the slightest here. And so he talks about how the proper role of affection, which a lot of this chapter is about that particular love and the four loves, Storge, Storge? Storge. Storge. Mm -hmm. Should always work towards making itself unneeded. Again, the opposite of Orwell. But as a natural love, it in itself has no power to do so. That's an interesting statement. Lewis argues that affection on its own does not have a natural inkling to make itself unneeded. It's only when it's infused with divine love that it has the ability to make itself unneeded. So Lewis says the instinct desires the good of its object, but not simply, only the good it can itself give. A much higher love, so he's referring to divine love here, a love which desires the good of the object as such from whatever sources that good comes from. So in this case, Psyche's getting it from somewhere other than Orwell, and that's okay must step in and help or tame the instinct before it can make the abdication. And of course, it often does. But he's essentially saying the divine love needs to prevent affection from being self-centered. Honestly, he, he argues that's the natural inclination of that instinctive desire. Mm. And we see that with her. Now in my notes, I've got two more things that they talk about. The first is death, because Psyche tries to offer... Orwell, a new perspective on death. She says, Sister, you will follow me soon. You don't think any mortal life seems a long thing to me tonight. Her impending death has put everything into perspective. And how would it be better if I'd lived? I suppose I should have been given to some king in the end, perhaps such another as our father. And there you can see again how little difference there is between dying and being married. And as I was reading this, 
I couldn't help but be reminded of a letter that Lewis wrote to Mary Shelburne. From this letter, there's a quote that's often ripped out of context to make it sound like, you know, tomorrow's a new day, go get it. Uh, but Lewis was writing to her because she thought she was going to be dying soon. And Lewis wrote, has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. I like that. Way to pull that in. Well then, that leads us to the subject of longing. Yeah, we see longing for death within Psyche that drives so much of her love for the gods. And this creates that hope in the face of death. And so a very a quote that I love from this chapter is, I have always, at least ever since I can remember, had a kind of longing for death. I almost chose that for the quote of the week. Orwell responds, Ah, Psyche, have I made you so little happy as that? Orwell is just is disappointed that Psyche has found so much of her joy, her peace, in this longing for something outside of her. And Psyche's response is brilliant. No, no, no. You don't understand. Not that kind of longing. It was when I was happiest that I longed most. It was on happy days when we were up there on the hills, the three of us, with the wind and the sunshine, where you couldn't see Gloam or the palace, and because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else, there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I couldn't, not yet, come. And I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. It felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. What she's describing here is longing that's been prompted by one of the transcendentals, beauty. She's seen some beauty and she wants more of it. She knows that there is a source to it. And she goes on and says, do you think that all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but like going back. All my life, the God of the mountain has been wooing me. I am going to my lover. Isn't that such a good quote? Yeah. (laughs) And this is the joy that Lewis spent his life pursuing. This is the joy that is referenced in his spiritual biography, Surprised by Joy. And this is a longing that you need to remember. We're going to talk about in a YouTube video upcoming. (laughs) Remember this. Uh, But yes, this is what David's favorite part of C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity was, that argument for desire. That is related to this longing. We see this. This is what I'm actually working on writing that Hallow talk on. Lewis recognized that he had this joy in his childhood, and then it was shattered at his mother's death. And then he constantly is searching for that again. And at various points throughout his life, honestly, through different authors and different literature, he's exposed to this beauty again that reminds him of that joy of his childhood. And he longs for it. The nostalgia is that longing. And it wasn't until he became a Christian that he realized that longing, it was pointing him back to something, but instead he realized later it's pointing him forward to something, that he was created for something beyond this earth. And so here... When we write about this in blog posts, we will talk about this more. Obviously, it's using different language because this is a fiction story with some interestingly created creatures and some mythology. But all of these, when it's talking about longing for this mountain and this god and this amber palace, it's referring to that longing that Lewis experienced in his life that ultimately brought him back to Christianity. And does this inspire Orwell? No. (laughs) 
She writes, and as she spoke, I felt amid all my love a bitterness. Though the things she was saving gave her courage and comfort, I grudged her that courage and comfort. It was as if someone or something else had come between us. And Orwell accuses Psyche of never loving her, and then she hears the knock on the door, Bardia signalling that she's got to leave. And she writes, and so the last spoiled embrace. Those are happy who have no such in their memory. For those who have, would they endure that I should write of it? If I had to pick a second theme for listeners that is impacting my life that Lewis has brought to my attention, the first one you hear myself talk about and David frequently is theosis. That divine life is more the language Lewis uses. I would say longing would be a close second now because I, the more I reflect on my own personal journey, that was my story too. My time at Oxford, when I was really down and and stayed as close as you could be to depression, and then came out of that, and how it pointed me towards wanting more and putting my that longing in the world, and the world disappointing me, and then searching, and then searching, and then coming to Christianity, and then coming to Catholicism, and ultimately how that brought me to where I am. Longing is so many of our stories. We don't realize it. And some of us are at different stages. Some of us are still at the stage, which is fine. I was there, and honestly, I still fight it of the world filling that longing. Uh, More success, more money, more experiences, more traveling, more Instagram likes, more subscribers to your podcast, all of these things. You think they will bring you the satisfaction, that longing, the validation, the affirmation. We can all relate to Orwell, and we're supposed to be more like Psyche. And listeners, if you have a longing to read some more over the next week, please read chapters eight and nine. And continue longing for our next episode, which will be next Tuesday. David, you do you do a great job, by the way, David, of ca- connecting my last words to what you want to say next. <laughs> I've always noticed that. I'm just very manipulative. <laughs> anyway, before I was so rudely interrupted, join us next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.